Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-hosts Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. So Sam,、uh, we've had some really、um, great feedback from from listeners over over the eight weeks, but we've also had some questions, and I think we had a really interesting question last week, specifically、um, around the Labour government and the potential of a Trump government coming into power. And so we touched on previously securenomics, and it seems from from for many that、uh, we follow a U.S. China strategy. So the question really is, what would a Labour government look like with a Trump government? Yeah, that is, on one level, going to be a hilarious, if not hair-pulling, administrational challenge for both sides. I think on the China-specific stuff, it's a really fascinating point because until Labour officially set out their, their China approach, which looks, as you say, rooted through securenomics in, in a large part, then we don't really know. There's too many unknowns in that regard, and if there's too many unknowns here, there are multiply that by a million to get to what a Trump administration. Round two looks like. However, I think securenomics and the idea about、uh, protectionism and protecting your critical assets and industries could find the ability for the two countries to work together on that. It, it just remains to be seen. And also, what we saw from Mark One the first time we had Trump in power was Trump views a lot of these leaders on a very personal basis, and it may well be that he views Keir Starmer as absolutely insufferable and therefore deprioritizes working with. The UK on shared stuff like that. I don't know. I suspect that's probably too strong. But we'll be, we'll be interested to see whether the, the what Cummings and others like to refer to as the deep state of both countries carries on working between、uh, these two prime ministers and presidents who might not like each other. I suppose to take that a bit further.、Mm. Would we see Trump maybe doubling down on working with European partners as opposed to the UK, or would we be all grouped in together in regards to a global Western alliance against what is becoming a Multipolar world, I think she has described it as. I think Trump probably would lump us in with、um, the rest of Europe, given he is supposed to have a close relationship with Boris Johnson. In theory, obviously, there's lots of those two overlap on an event diagram in terms of personality stuff. But Keir Starmer is not like Donald Trump, and I suspect also it depends where we are with China at that point, because if. The U.S. administration sees the need for the U.K. as a, an important partner, and we are an important partner in the Five Eyes, which met overnight. We're an important partner at the UN Security Council, etc., etc. Then there's obviously grounds for us to work together, and、uh, you know there's 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 room there to build the capabilities, the China capabilities between both countries. And just attack on the last thing, you know, AUKUS, the nuclear sort of powered submarine pact that we have with the U.K., the U.S., and Australia. That has a pillar too, which covers a whole range of technologies that we've not even begun to think about properly in the Westminster sort of village yet, and that's going to be a long, months-long, years-long collaboration between the US, UK, and Australia. So there will be lots of avenues to work together with very many gaffes in the meantime. It's going to be quite funny. Well, as I say, thank you for sending in the question, and please do send in more because we'd love to answer as many as many as we can. Let, let's crack on, Sam. I think we've got a, an absolutely packed episode. There is so much to talk about when it comes to UK-China relations. Obviously, I will start with what we led with last week, which is the Israel-Hamas war. 
I guess let's let's just start off in regards to the China stance. China has not traditionally played a role in the Middle East, and I don't think many people are looking towards China for a solution, specific solution, because of Beijing's limited influence. However, they are being thrust into the limelight because of this global peacemaker role that they um, they have presented themselves out. Mm. So, in research for this episode, I've been looking into the the Chinese response, what's coming out of the state media. As you can imagine, they're positioning this as this is China's opportunity to be the world peacemaker. State media has also been quite quickly to blame the US in regards to aggravating the conflict in the Middle East mm. and constantly meddling in countries' affairs. Now, I'll just take us back to, to last week's episode. Uh, on last week, we read out the, the Chinese statement from Wang Yi. It was a v- very generic, bland, standard response from the Chinese, basically calling for calm and restraint and an immediate ceasefire. I suppose, in my opinion, I think this shows the unrealistic nature of what they are wading into. Very out of touch in regards to the current situation, the ferocity of attack that took place and the years of conflict within that region. And obviously, the um, Tel Aviv have been quite dissatisfied around sort of a bland statement and they've, they've called for something stronger, to which the embassy have, have basically condemned all acts of, of violence um, and attacks and, and civilians. So I, I guess the question is, Sam, I think Beijing finds itself in a very problematic position right now. I might describe it as cakeism. Mm. China wants to be friends on to both sides, both the Israelis, because they have a, a quite a large trading relationship and quite ingrained in regards to some of the technological advancements that are taking place there. And they want to play the peacemaker. But traditionally, it seems Beijing wants to be neutral officially, but unofficially does support the Palestinian cause. So where does China find itself on this on this situation? It's a question that a lot of the foreign policy establishments and Western liberal democracies will be asking themselves. And a lot of governments around the world should be asking themselves right now. Because as you say, if, chi- if China's pitch is that as America retreats from the world, we can step up and help solve these conflicts or put aside these rivalries. Well, that's all well and good. But when push comes to shove in moments like this, come into existence. As you say, a bland statement, which could have been published any time in the last 10 years and could have been written by ChatGPT, does not cut the mustard, to use a very sort of British phrase. And people love to um, criticize America for its role in the Middle East and many things it has done incredibly wrong, in my personal opinion. You know, And I've, got the, I've had the privilege in many ways of being raised in a liberal democracy, so that shaped my thinking. But being the world's policeman requires making horrible decisions. You cannot sit on the fence often and often when you do make decisions, half the people on one side of them will criticize you very heavily in any for- or sort of forum they can. And this is where I think China has shown a level of immaturity is probably the wrong word, but it requires a thick, thick skin to try and police the world and to try and maintain and stand behind international agreements and international laws. And China has shown itself, the Chinese government has shown itself over the last couple of years to be particularly thin-skinned when it comes to even pretty basic criticism. So I think it's been very eye-opening in the sense that in the first half of this year, there are lots of sort of commentators stroking their chins and saying, perhaps China is going to take a huge role in the Middle East as a sort of diplomatic power. Well, if if it's trying to do that, it's doing it pretty poorly right now. Um, We have to see what comes of it. But the initial first week of reaction, I think, has been summed up pretty well by lots of analysts who, as you say, just disappointed and perhaps unsurprised to see China try to toe that line pretty poorly. To further that, I think, or do you think that the conflict is driving another wedge 
between the global West, Western allies and China. It's, it doesn't seem that China's in lockstep with the global condemnation of, of what's just happened. Yeah, I, it'd be worth doing some analysis to see where countries that you know would, would fall under the sort of global south, what they've said over the last couple of, uh, couple of days with regards to the Hamas attack and then also the Israeli response to it. Because my gut would tell me that across liberal democracies, we're fairly united in our condemnation of Hamas's sort of terrorist attack. And also there's been lots of sort of like publicly supportive of Israel defending its sovereign borders and then also quiet calls for restraint as well. They don't want to see Israel level parts of Gaza, stuff like that. That being said, I don't know whether that's been replicated from the global south. And one of the points which I saw raised last week, and I and you know you know you and I have discussed Steve, is if the UK specifically is and well because it's specific to our podcast, is is seen to be backing Israel hundred percent to the point where they are encouraging or or giving Israel the green light to perhaps break international rules and norms then there are many countries around the world that will look at that and say, oh, brilliant. Well, next time we have an issue on our border or we have a domestic issue or a uh, ethnic issue within our borders and you know X, Y, Z happens and we get condemned by the UK, we can point around and say, well, you guys did this and that aspect here and, and you know why, why do we deserve to have this reaction here? So I don't know whether the Israel-Gaza conflict at this stage has split the world so succinctly into the Western bloc and or the liberal democratic bloc and then the global South and China. But it is painful to see a lot of people attaching sort of the anti-America, anti-China, whatever they want to do to the, to a, a absolutely horrific conflict, which stands on its own as a horrific, horrific conflict. And, and I think just to add, you know, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. The The situation is so fluid. There is, there is so much taking place. I mean, you know, we heard from there was reports from Wang Yi essentially saying that Israel's actions have gone far beyond self-defense. And I suppose moving that forward, you know, anything China does, it's for China first. That's fundamentally China's reaction to most to most issues is and specifically in the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Where does China fit and how can China benefit? And that would be the mindset, I think, coming from 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 Beijing. But it's an extremely fluid and challenging situation that China has been thrust into the forefront of, which I think brings us on to our next topic, which is what is taking place in Beijing right now, the Belt and Road Initiative, the Belt and Road Forum, previously known as the, the One Belt, One Road Initiative. And essentially, this is a 10-year anniversary of a Xi Jinping legacy project all around investment. And, and I suppose, why is that so important? Um, 150 countries are in Beijing right now. Many of the, the international organizations, just you know, the majority, or if not all of the global South presidents, prime ministers are there. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Gutierrez, is there, as well as China's good friend, Vladimir Putin. The UK and the majority of the global West have not sent anyone, but this is because they're not officially signed up to the uh, Belt and Road Initiative. So Sam, maybe just to give a bit of context to our readers, why is that the case? Why, why are no Western global leaders there? Why have the UK, being a global trading nation, not signed up to the Belt and Road Initiative? Yeah, so the Belt and Road Initiative, as it's understood in sort of Western political circles, diplomatic circles, intelligence circles, is viewed as a Chinese project which creates these situations that they call debt trap diplomacy. So in its most simple terms, you know, I'm a Chinese company. I lend Steve £100 or $100 to build a port. 
I charge, let's say, 25% interest every month, something ludicrous like that. Steve obviously can't afford to pay me back as a local entity, and I then take possession of that port in whichever country it is. That's the sort of explain like I'm five version of what there's the belief that the BRI does. The UK, funnily enough, until actually not too long ago, we had chancellors talking about how good the BRI potentially would be for the UK. I remember reading a Philip Hammond speech when he was chancellor, where he was extolling the virtues of the BRI. So the BRI definitely has a place in in terms of what the UK political establishment thinks about it. Interestingly, when it comes to the BRI, uh, there's a huge divergence I found in my reading between what politicians and policymakers talk about it and and think it is versus what academics who study the BRI say about it, specifically on debt chat diplomacy. So one of the conversations is, well, they give deliberately uh, predatory loans, perhaps, but I I don't, predatory, predatory by what standard, you know, predatory compared to the IMF, well, perhaps, but predatory compared to a huge bank, I I don't think so, given what we've seen in the uh, academia. But it's interesting, and it'll be fascinating um, to see what comes out of it. I saw that she's made a speech already this morning, which has gone live, um, which I'm sure you can sort of uh, add some detail on, Steve. Yeah, so I I think it's also hard to just understate how big this conference actually is, how big this forum actually is. I mean, to mention just the amount of global South developing countries that are actually there. And I completely understand this will only be picked up probably in negative terms by Western media, and, and maybe rightly so. You know, Vladimir Putin is attending. You have the head of the Secretary General of the United Nations condemning, in his speech, condemning the Israel-Hamas um, war, but, you know, no mention of what's happening in, in Russia and Ukraine. So, you know, you can't just be picking and choosing, you know, which global affairs you would like to kind of condemn or, or discuss. Um, but just maybe let's just jump in quickly to the details. So China is essentially honing its pitch. So Xi made his opening remarks or his his keynote speech this morning today, and China is honing its pitch in regards to, and it's shifting its focus. It's moving away from sort of large scale, riskier, high value infrastructure projects to what they're describing as small and beautiful projects, which are more technological green projects. And he laid out an eight point plan, which um, essentially outlined what they would be. One of those was a, a railway link to Europe. And I think just judging by the attendance, you know, regardless of the cynicism in the in the global West, um, you know, the Belt and Road has mass appeal to the majority of developing nations and the global South. And, and you can see that just from the photo opportunities, right? Chinese officials love a photo opportunity. And, you know, that's being out there everywhere. Now, the one thing I will say to all of this, again, you know, it, in regards to probably what people are thinking back here in, in Whitehall, is nothing remotely compares to this in any Western city anywhere on the planet. This is not taking place in London. You know, this is taking place in Beijing and they have created this. So what would the West's alternative be? What are we doing in, in not in response per se, or maybe in response? You know, what are we doing to to, to counter this? It, and so therefore, do, do, do developing nations, have there any other option? Yeah, exactly. So there are Western initiatives underway. The US does have its own sort of version it's trying to work on and the EU has also launched its own version. But the reality is there's lots of complaining with very little monetary action behind it. And this is a point that you and I have discussed before, Steve. If you're going to complain about the BRI, that is absolutely valid and you can criticize it absolutely. But you must at the same time if you want to make the sort of diplomatic gains that you're trying to make by criticizing the BRI, offer an alternative to these developing countries. They need 
They need infrastructure, they need roads, hospitals, they need to have digital connectivity. And it's no good just sitting here and saying, this is all terrible. You're being debt trapped. You're being played for fools. Well, they're also being played for fools if nothing's often to begin with. And I do think there's a level of um, what we sometimes see here in, in the UK, especially not giving autonomy to these countries too. Very few times in my experience when I speak to embassies here from some of these countries, do they ever relay the message that like, oh, wow, we're completely shocked and surprised to hear that the Chinese loans we're taking or the Chinese loans that our, our countries next to us are taking are potentially predatory. They, they're not left with a choice. And it's one of the criticisms that the IMF has faced and the World Bank has faced is the terms in which they offer these loans to the countries that, that, that need them. I think the timing of the Belt and Road Forum taking place just a week after Israel-Hamas or the, the, the starting of Israel-Hamas war is particularly significant when we're talking about China being or wanting to push for a, peace, a global peacemaker role. And certainly some of the strongest statements they're saying around bringing the world together. You know, the world can't, China can't succeed without the world succeeding. And so the timing is certainly interesting on that. One of the other really interesting points that came out of C's speech was around artificial intelligence. And while it was a small focus of the speech, it was actually quite an important and impactful uh, moment. And he basically said we need to promote safe development of artificial intelligence. And I think that brings us on to one of the discussions we had last week. We're really sort of lucky to be hearing from Alan Nixon, who is the head of science and technology at the think tank Onward. Uh, Alan was previously director of collaboration at Fujitsu's Center for Cognitive and Advanced Tech. And before that, he actually served as a special advisor in a couple of roles in the UK government over a period of four years. So he spent a lot of time thinking about these things, both in and out of government. And we asked him ahead of the AI Safety Summit, which comes up in about a fortnight, what the UK should be thinking about, what we should be looking to do with regards to building safety into this sort of system with China, where we have overlapping interests and where we don't. Uh, just before we get into this, for a bit of context for what this AI Safety Summit is for our listeners. The UK, well, under Prime Minister Rishi Sunak specifically, has looked to take a leading role in setting the systems for which AI can develop in. For Steve and I, uh, incredibly technologically advanced men who definitely don't get locked out of their iPhones every second day, we appreciate how difficult it is to, to do these sort of things. But when ChatGPT came along last year, it really did put a lot of scare into Western policymakers, and actually policymakers all over the world, including Chinese officials. Um, and... This summit is the first of its type. It's a chance to gather world leaders together with the private sector and to try and understand and put into place just the beginning of an agreement around how we build and advance AI technology safely. So we're extremely excited to hear from Alan. Let's get into it. Alan, if I could slightly push you, I mean, first of all, the sentence of we've got three elections next year fills me with a dread which you cannot even begin to conceive, <laughs> the thought of having to wade through all that sort of stuff. But Whereabouts is China sitting on its AI development? Uh, if it was like a sort of Venn diagram as to how these two different sort of uh, systems looked at it, is there much overlap in terms of how they view this potential threats and opportunities or is it they're two different systems at play? Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really good question. Um, I mean, the way I see it is I think that China looks at it from AI from, I guess, two different perspectives. One, it wants to be a global leader in AI. It's made that really, really clear. You can see some of the things that Xi Jinping has talked about. Xi Jinping wants China to be a global tech leader, especially in AI, and is spending a lot of money focused on making sure that the UK, uh, that, that China is a leader uh, in AI. And, you know, we can see all the, the challenges that we've had between uh, the US and China. China's companies are being cut off from getting some of the best 
you know, the A100 chips from NVIDIA and that sort of thing, which is having huge problems. We're, we're seeing them regardless, still trying to build some some of the biggest um, LLMs. I think Baidu, sorry, uh, large language models. I think Baidu um, quite the past few weeks announced that they um, have secured regulatory approval for Ernie 3.5, which is like double the size of their previous large language model. And it's meant to be, you know, they're challenge the open AI's chat GPT. So they're clearly trying to seize the moment on this. And, you know, lots of other cloud uh, operating services are, are, are trying to, in China, are trying to drive this. However, on safety, I think what the biggest challenge is, is that the Chinese Communist Party are extremely concerned, as we've seen throughout, you know, throughout the decades that they've been in power, the biggest concern that they have is on stability at home. And AI could be one of the biggest disruptors and challenges to that that they have ever seen, actually, and they are massively concerned about it. And you know, they've they've come out with regulations or rules recently to try and temper that and and deal with that challenge. And they are pretty. Uh, there's lots of things in there where. Um, so what was it? So the name of the it's the Cyberspace Administration of. China is the name of the relevant body. I think it's relatively new, but they've got huge powers and they're requiring that firms have to provide generative AI services to the public. In order to do that, they have to provide a li- uh, achieve a license. Um, they have to register their algorithms, the algorithms themselves with the government. They have to get a special security assessment from um, anything that may be deemed um, influencing public opinion. Like it's, it's it's crazy, right? It's like, and also there's something else as well where they talk about how the products have to align with the uh, the country's socialist values, right? Isn't like they're really really concerned about it. It's probably not the the last that we'll hear from China trying to regulate AI domestically, um, and it's a really hard balance for them, right? So so it's interesting how China plays within this broader global AI safety question. Because they they have a huge challenge here where they want to be both the leader and make sure that it doesn't cause their biggest fear of all time, which is instability at home, which you know could lead to them being overthrown, which is you know as I say their their biggest challenge, their biggest fear. I guess we saw a fair amount of pushback when China was actually invited to the AI summit, and so I suppose what's the main argument that they are there, and what's the main arguments of them not being there, and do we see quite a divergent in regards to different governments' opinion? On China being at the summit, hmm. I I don't know if I'll be able to talk to the divergence um, of opinions, but uh, when it comes to reasons to invite them, reasons not to, I know that this uh, even with some of the officials uh, that I was I was speaking to as well when this was first announced, I know that there was a lot of back and forth and different uh, opinions, which I won't talk to uh, directly, but but certainly I think the reasons not to invite probably come across three main buckets which are one is diverging intentions and it's sort of what i was pointing to there where china sees um ai domestically completely differently to how you know western liberal democracies and others um see ai they they don't um see it as um a way to protect citizens and you know protect economies and society they see it as a way to to ensure political control um and to make sure that they are not that the government is stability and the regime is looked after 
Um, so, so the question is, why would we want to bring someone along who fundamentally sees AI differently to us um, and what we are trying to do with AI? The next one, I guess, is on cheating. So the idea that you know China's got quite a long history of attempting to subvert uh, international and multilateral institutions and technical standards and that sort of thing. So what's the point in having them along when we know that they're just going to cheat anyway? So we all sign up to it. China say they're going to sign up to it. And then there are those out there who think that China would then go ahead and not respect that rightly or wrongly. But that is certainly the view of some. Would you know? The third one, I guess, would be futility, which is global governance is... Uh, not operating very effectively. Uh, the UN Security Council can't really get much done. So therefore, and lots of other uh, institutions are struggling. So therefore, global governance is a pipe dream. It's never going to happen on AI, given the divergence of views. So what's the point in trying? We should just work together with democratic nations and try and get them, uh, you know, over the line at least. And then that's at least something that we can do where where we agree. On. So I, which you know, three. So basically, they shouldn't be invited then. Well, well, look, there's the three good reasons not to. Uh, but actually, my view is that despite those three um, fair arguments, I, I'm actually of the view that they should be there. Firstly, because if the UK wants to build a global consensus, um, and I think they are not trying to bite off more than they can chew, and we've seen that with them narrowing the scope of the summit to just being on frontier um and i don't think they've been i mean they've been quite clear that they're not trying to uh impose a global regulator at this summit they're just i think what they're trying to do is basically get an agreement on what the risks are and you know and that's that seems very very um uh, elemental but that is actually i think what they're trying to do and that's the first stage of a process so they're not trying to achieve too much in this but if you're trying to make it a global summit where you're at least getting people around the table, um, it's hard to say that it's global or even uh, you know, suggest that it's global if you're leaving out the world's second biggest economy. Um, the other risk, which I think is perhaps even more systemic, is that you risk alienating others. You know, it is folly to suggest that um, you know, less uh, liberal democracy is... Uh, you know, is is the the most popular um, form of governance across the world, right? We're not in the end of history, Francis Fukuyama world anymore, right? Like, you know, um, there are lots of um, countries out there who choose, let's call it a non-aligned status. Um, and we've, we, you know, we've seen that with uh, Russia and Ukraine and the UK... Um, leading the the light with just liberal democracies and really trying to show that it's just its friends and excluding countries like China and the countries that one either don't necessarily um, wholeheartedly align with our values and our you know uh, way of governance um, or two have very strong trade links with China are often not going to want to be um, seen to be siding if there's a big split so to it, it doesn't help um, building that global coalition um, itself. Thirdly, um, I think other reason to invite China, which is probably not what the government would say, but we know it's a consideration. Is you don't want you have you have um, a price to pay when you irk China. We know that they 
that they use their dependencies uh, quite liberally um, on nations. And it's, uh, it's a little bit more the sharper end of geopolitics, but we know that there would be a price to pay to do that. And I'm not suggesting that that was the primary reason, but it's always a concern when it comes to, to China. So I, I'm actually, it's, it is a bit of a balance, but I was always on the side that they, they should be invited. Yeah, definitely a balance in, in inviting them. Can I just quickly move pace and just in regards to actual AI in general? So AI just seems to be advancing so fast. And this is in my, I guess, my my naive opinion, but maybe driven by the, the private sector. So so the likes of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Meta, you know, these are the organizations that are driving AI. And it doesn't seem that the government would be able to keep up to pace with that, just in regards to, to resources, top scientists. So how can the summit bring together the, the private and the public sector? Or even, and again, naive perspective, is that going to take place at this summit? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to how government deals with um, fast-moving technologies, I mean, a- across the board, I've written about this over the summer where um, about how much of a challenge this is and how government, the UK government specifically, um, needs to really change how it operates, right? And I, I had a whole deep dive into it. Under plumbings, it's called Wire for Success, right? And it's all about the wirings of Whitehall and how that basically needs to be rewired in order to deal with this huge challenge, not just with AI, but with other uh, fast-moving technologies that are game-changing for our economy and you know are coming our way regardless. And it's really hard for them to to basically work out how to well, one, what it thinks about these things, because often there's not the expertise in there, and um, two then decide what it actually wants to do. Then three, actually do it, such as you've got the, the government's uh, quite commendably going to uh, procure a £900 million exascale supercomputer up in my home country of Scotland. And yeah, it's fantastic. It's going to take ages for it to for it to actually be all set up because of the procurement rules, right? And it's going through the same procurement processes as any other thing within government. Which, which is a problem because it'll be 2026 is um, when it's scheduled to be there for. The world will have moved on, especially the world of AI, where compute is so important. Um, so it's a big challenge across the board. I think government should be commended, though, for trying uh, and DSIP, when it was set up, has clearly been trying to build closer links with industry. You know, the government's got one of the few in the world uh, that I know of where they have an agreement with these, with these frontier labs um, to access um, their their models in a way that lots of other governments do not have. I think that's to be commended. And, and more broadly, the uh, the science department has been trying to build closer links with industry. Like, you know, it's got a secondment program as well to bring in that expertise from industry, the frontier AI uh, task force is another good example of that of bringing in key people in industry who know the space uh, in order to actually build a better understanding and also and uh, to its credit with the 100 million that they've got i think that's uh the model that they're taking with that is it reports the the task force reports straight into the prime minister and i think there's quite a a decent amount of delegation um, that task force has in order to be able to act fast um in the interest that um, that it's serving on on AI safety. So there's there's lots of good things to be supportive of, but it is a huge huge challenge, and uh, and government definitely doesn't have all the answers just yet. I will will include a link to Alan's paper from over the summer in the reading notes list below. So do check it out, Alan. We're incredibly grateful for the time. I'm going to ask you one more question. 
What would the number one success from the UK-China bilateral look like from this summit? What is the one thing that the UK would like to take away from this on the, on the Chinese side and vice versa, in your opinion? Probably, if, if the aim of the summit is to agree a, a shared understanding of what we mean by AI risk and be able to agree some sort of framework in a decent amount of detail, for that to get through without it being watered down to oblivion in order to get it over the line by the likes of China, that would be a massive success. And and look, we, we shouldn't forget what's what's riding on these uh, on these international summits, even if the the aims are are by the government themselves are actually a bit muted. When when there are big international forums like this, there's lots of uh, attention. But also, this is the, the legacy stuff that are remembered, right? And uh, you know, I remember when uh, um, when Boris was reportedly not uh, entirely happy when. Um, Alok Sharma, the, the the Sherpa for COP26, you know, cried on stage because you know it wasn't entirely, uh, well, it wasn't that it was unse- unsuccessful, but he he felt like he hadn't quite delivered fully, and uh, you know there was reports that uh, there wasn't in, in too much pleasure at that because you know people remember these things, right? This needs to go down for the government, and the government's got a lot of um, challenges on its hands. This needs to go down with the government uh, as a success. It's made it a lot harder with uh, inviting companies. Uh, countries, sorry, along such as China, and having it not look like nothing has been achieved, whilst also bringing across bringing along people who are not entirely aligned with your worldview, let alone views specifically on this technology, is going to be really, really difficult. Uh, and that's the challenge that the government's got. Alan, thank you so much. That was incredibly informative. Um, and you know, St- Steve and I are just incredibly grateful for your time. And uh, we will include a link to Alan's research down below. I cannot recommend it enough. Even if you, like I, cannot turn your iPhone on, you're that technologically backwards. It is very engaging and very accessible. <laughs> Alan, thank you so much. That was a, a sort of fascinating uh, chance to hear from someone who was intimately involved with following this and thinking about how the UK can harness AI, both for economic development and also where it wants to sit on the, the world stage with this AI regulation and, and thinking. Before we close out the episode, Steve, is there anything else that you've got your eye on? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, just to, just to cover that again, I just... Uh, it's fascinating, genuinely fascinating, listening to someone in such a technical subject talking about just the advancements being so fast. You know, all I heard was, you know, Elon Musk, the billionaire, basically saying we need to pause pause on AI development. So I think it's really important to watch what's coming out the AI Summit. As we mentioned from the from the top of the show, the top of the episode, there is so much taking place in China. And we, we unfortunately, in a, in a 30 minute episode, can't cover everything. Um, some of the things I think to, to just, just flag, which I think are important stories, maybe moving forward. Didi, which is China's sort of ride hailing app, was, was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Well, that has now been delisted from the New York Stock Exchange and is expected to go onto the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So I think that's a really, really important um announcement. And I think there might be more of uh, com- Chinese companies that have listed on the stock exchange being delisted and moved towards the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So certainly something to flag. We also saw in more corruption news in China, the former Bank of China boss uh, was arrested on corruption charges. Is this a good thing or a bad thing for China? It's obviously stamping out corruption, uh, which is good, but it just demonstrates the level of corruption at the highest 
um, echelons of, of Chinese society and Chinese business that this goes, um, that the Bank of China has been arrested on corruption charges. And I suppose just to finish, Sam, we also saw London Metals Week taking place, which was discussing critical minerals. And so just a, a final thing to you, you know, why is this important? And um, why should we be interested in this? Well, yeah. So next week, we're actually going to be speaking to a critical minerals expert and uh, author. So watch this space. But the basic gist of why critical minerals are important is because everything we have and use in sort of modern day life is powered or utilizes critical minerals. So listening to Stephen I's dulcet voice on this podcast right now, that involves critical minerals in your phone and your earphones, et cetera, et cetera. And there's been a scramble in the Western world to try and make those supply chains have less exposure to the Chinese government, to Chinese companies, because the Chinese companies and Chinese government holds a throttle if it wants to over a huge number of them. And so the London Metals Week saw many people from different governments assemble in London where they were talking about trying to diversify their critical mineral supply chains. So watch this space. We'll have a very interesting discussion next week with a proper expert. Mm-hmm.